0: And we do a lot of those deals, don't get me wrong, but some of my better deals are deals that we are creating equity through terms, okay? So to, to talk about a, an owner finance deal, so an owner finance transaction is one where the buyer isn't having to go and get a traditional mortgage loan at a bank and they're not going and paying cash for the property, we're doing the loan ourselves. So in my world, I'd rather own a note as opposed to a rental property. And the difference being I don't
1: have vacancy and repair whenever I
0: own paper as opposed
1: to property. I'm Neil. And I'm Brittany. We are a family on a journey towards financial and location independence. Each week, we interview successful real estate entrepreneurs about their chosen investment strategy and rate it based on how much money it took to get started, how long it took to educate themselves, how passive it is, and whether or not they could do it from anywhere in the world.
0: Welcome to the Road to Family Freedom.
1: Before we begin this week's show, I'd like to make you an offer, a free 30-minute call with me. We've been doing weekly chats with other real estate investors for months now, and the response has been great, but we're going to change things up a bit and focus. We are buying self-storage facilities. We have a great partner in North Carolina with a great track record of success, a background in construction, and we're partnering up to help him expand his portfolio. If you have an interest in learning more about investing in self-storage, on the active side, on the passive side, whatever your level of interest, we want to talk to you. There's no pitch here. We're not selling a coaching program. This is just a chance for us to network with other investors interested in self-storage. Also, if you're a current self-storage owner, we'd love to chat with you and perhaps have you as a guest on our show. If all that sounds like something you'd be interested in, go to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash self-storage call and schedule a call there. I look forward to speaking with you.
0: All right, enough out of us. Let's hit the road to family freedom.
1: Greetings, friends and families. I'm Neil. You're listening to the Road to Family Freedom podcast. Our guest this week is the host of a top 100 podcast called Investor Creator, where he teaches new and seasoned real estate investors how to scale their house flipping business to six or seven figures. He has over eleven years' experience and five hundred and fifty transactions to date, and he specializes in acquiring properties subject to and with owner financing. Brad Smotherman, welcome to the Road to Family Freedom.
0: Appreciate you having me on. Been looking forward to this all week.
1: Oh, well, thank you. We have too. So, um, let's start with your story. Do you recall an aha moment for you when it came to uh, discovering real estate investing?
0: Certainly. So, actually. In college, I began to sell real estate. So I got my real estate license when I was 18 and I went through college. And I, the reason that I got into real estate is I thought, well, maybe I can learn a little bit about an industry and make as much as I would bartending or waiting tables and that kind of thing. And and I actually, uh, my first six months, I was a dismal failure in sales, but then I got picked up by a builder developer, uh, began to manage a model home, pre sell new construction, and I did fairly well part-time uh, going through college. But what I saw um, once the 2008 correction happened was that the real, real estate agents that were that in 2004, five and six were making three, $400,000 a year were once again, going back into their offices and beginning to cold call. And that's not what I wanted for me, you know, being in my fifties and sixties, having to go back and grind again. And the, what I saw was that the people that weathered the storm the best, as far as I could tell, were the people that had long-term assets with cash flow. And so I decided at that point, like, I really need to get out of selling real estate and begin to own it.
1: Gotcha. You know, it amazes me the number of real estate agents that I talk to who have no concept of long-term buy and hold real estate. It's, all, it's purely a transactional, uh, it's a purely transactional business for them. And, and if they stop, if they stop doing it, then they stop making money.
0: Yeah. And, and it's really difficult to weather bad times. Well, I mean, the thing about real estate is it's always going to be cyclical and so we have to plan for those things. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, so what was your, what was your first real estate deal like? So I retired my real estate license at the beginning of 2010 just to do investment and I'd never bought an investment property before. And so I was marketing for motivated sellers and, and doing the, the ugly, we buy houses signs that you see on the side of the road. So I was the guy that would put those out because I didn't have the ability to do anything else because I had no money. And so uh, it took me eight months to hit my first deal. I still remember when the lead came in. And I specifically remember where I was when the lead came in because I was so emotionally beat up from having eight months of failure, Right. And so I remember the lead came in. The voicemail was very similar to everything else that I'd ever heard. Just hey, we have a house we need to sell. Call us back. Um, and I had kind of a moment there where I thought, Gosh, I just don't want to call this person back. I just I'm just done. I'm just so so beat up emotionally. I just don't want to do this anymore. But then I, I had to, to have a, a I had to check my commitment. You know, like Brad, you wanted this. This is what you wanted for your life. Like you got to call this guy back. So I did, and I happened into a transaction. So uh, to put the numbers to the deal. Um, a lot of what we do is we buy creatively. So we're buying subject to an existing lien or I'm getting 0% owner financing on a purchase and then I'm selling with owner financing. And so that was pretty similar to what my first deal was. So there was $97,000 owed in first position. It was a divorce situation. The people were about to be a couple payments behind. And so I bought it for the $97,000 lien position. So there was no walkaway money to the seller. Uh, We set up to take over payments on that 97. And before I closed it, I had my buyer in place at 135 with 20,000 down. So I got 20,000 in cash. Uh, that felt like 20 million bucks because I had like 300 bucks at the time. And that, that began my marketing machine. So, you know, I always say for people that are just starting in the business, it's like, if you can have the ability to last, once you have that one transaction, you can begin to, to create a real business. You know, we're always one deal away from being successful with this.
1: Yeah. So, so you actually ended up, On that first deal, you didn't have to put twenty K into the deal. You actually got twenty K out of the deal immediately with basically no money into the deal, correct?
0: Correct. Correct. So I got twenty thousand in cash. I also got a note that was that threw off long term cash flow. So I got today money, I got future money in the note, and then I got
1: cash flow along the way. Okay. Um, so I understand, I understand subject to an owner financing and, and you know wrapping to get a note and things like that. But for some of our listeners who maybe are not familiar with that strategy, uh, can you sort of describe that kind of deal structure?
0: Yeah. And it's one of, of maybe five or six different ways that we can deal structure. And I think that deal structure is probably one of the more overlooked things in real estate because everyone's trying to, to get a great price. You know, we want to be at 60 cents on the dollar. And we do a lot of those deals, don't get me wrong, but some of my better deals are deals that we are creating equity through terms, okay? So to, to talk about a, an owner finance deal, so an owner finance transaction is one where the buyer isn't having to go and get a traditional mortgage loan at a bank, and they're not going and paying cash for the property. We're doing the loan ourselves. So in my world, I'd rather own a note as opposed to a rental property. And the difference being, I don't have vacancy and repair whenever I own paper as opposed to property. So I've often said if everything that I own fit into a file cabinet, that would make me very happy. Uh, I do have some rentals, it's just part of it, you know. and there are times when rentals make sense, but uh, overall, we wanna create paper. So we buy creatively, so subject to, which means that we're leaving a loan in place, we're not qualifying for that loan, we're not assuming that loan, uh, or we're getting zero percent rate on our financing on a property that's free and clear which creates, as you know, an amortization difference in the underlying and the wrap. But um, you know, we're buying creatively, we're selling with under-financing, we get a good down payment that's often better than what a wholesale fee would be, and we're getting long-term assets as well that throw off cash flow. So for me, it was like the, the best of everything. You know, I didn't have vacancy repair, I had long-term assets, I had cash flow along the way, which builds up on every deal, as opposed to selling real estate and people having to go back and grind again, which is what I saw in 2009. So this 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 model specifically solved that
1: issue. Gotcha. All right. So so you're you know when you're talking to the seller, the seller is in they're in a distressed position. They're you know maybe behind on payments. They've got a um, they're going through a divorce. They've lost a job. Health issues. Whatever is causing their distress. And you're able to come through and say, hey, listen, we're going to take over. We're going to take over your payments, subject to the existing mortgage. Um, and now the, the, the payments are gone. Um, you're, are you having to, are you having to have any sort of conversation with their bank when you do that?
0: Well, what we do is we send in a loan authorization letter that allows us to go to the bank and, and verify the facts of that loan. So, I mean, in, in that context we are, and we give constructive notice on the transaction that we're doing. And so there, there's nothing hidden and, and we're a hundred percent upfront with the seller in terms yeah. of, you know, this is what the impact can be, you know? Um, but we've had a lot of success with what we're doing. And the, the thing is that Whenever we're dealing with a really motivated person, so someone that has a life situation that dictates they have to get rid of this property, then we can generally—not all the time, but generally—we can get the correct terms that what we in terms of what we need. And man, when I started, this is how I had to do it because I had no money and I couldn't go to the bank and get bank financing. So you know, I, I had one loan on on my personal house, and I went to the bank and said, "Hey, you know, remember me? I'm Brad. I'm going to be this big real estate guy, and, and I'd like to get some funding." And they said, "Well, Brad." you know, we've looked at your file and you've made your payment, and we're happy to approve you for another loan as soon as you pay this one off. So it wasn't super helpful for me. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So we had to find another way. And luckily, you know, we got good at first lead generation negotiation and the deal structure part. So we can create these kinds of transactions.
1: Gotcha. And so how do you, how do you frame that to a seller? I mean, uh, you know, a lot of sellers, you know, they're just like, listen, man, I just want the pain to stop. Uh, mm-hmm. how do you, how are you framing the idea of, uh, that subject to, uh, to them?
0: Yeah. And that's a great question. So, um, the bird's eye view of it is going to be number one, the, the negotiation starts with your marketing that, that goes out. Okay. So you're going to get a different person from like a yellow letter versus a, a Google AdWords ad. Okay. So like one is far more motivated than the other. And so if we're dealing with a motivated person, um, the second thing that I would submit to you is, uh, we can't give prices. We can't make offers. So like in my negotiation structure, we never make an offer ever. We never give a price. And because of that, if we're in a situation where uh, someone is, so, I mean, let, let's just take the example of the deal we just did in Las Vegas, which I know, which is where where you are. Uh, there was roughly 170,000 owed in first position on this deal and the property we own owner finance it for about 220 and that's what we did. Um, and so we asked the seller, look, you know, If I could get this deal done, how much at closing are you hoping for? This is your check at closing. So they gave me a number that we could work with. I think it was like 5,000 bucks because here's a situation this person had. Number one, they were two payments behind. Number two, they were in a divorce. And number three, uh, supposedly uh, she had too many monster energy drinks and had a heart attack. So I, I don't know if that's true. That's what we were told, okay? So I'm not disparaging against Monster Energy drinks. I'm, I'm a big fan of Monster Energy drinks, but uh, maybe you don't have six of them or whatever she said. So, uh, you know, but we have a real situation here. We have health, health and safety, we have divorce, and we have pre-foreclosure, which are three of our top five motivators that we see in most of our transactions. And so in this situation, we're able to um, basically say, well, if I can get you that $5,000 walk away money, I'm going to have to do it like this. Right. And so it's kind of like the, the carrot in front of the donkey, you know, we don't want to make offers for them to shop. We're saying, look, if you want what you want, that's fine, but it needs to be done this way. So we're taking them from price to deal structure. Gotcha.
1: And then, um, you know, it's a it typically, you know, if you're it right, it's a win-win for them because they're long-term they're not uh, they're not going to have a foreclosure uh, sale on their on their uh, on their credit, which allows them. You know, if they're trying to rebuild their life, they can turn around and do it in, you know, a much shorter time than, you know, five to seven years, however long it's going to take for the for the foreclosure to go off their record. Correct.
0: Well, and that, and and also, if there's a foreclosure issue, then there's a chance of deficiency. So, you know, we still do see at times where foreclosure does happen, and uh, the the, per- the borrower ends up being deficient on that loan, and they get sued in court, and, and wages are garnished, and that's a real issue. So, I mean, if we can keep people from having those kinds of, of really devastating consequences, then, then everyone's better off, 100%.
1: Gotcha. Um, and how? so their name, they, they stay on the existing loan. How, how are you making them feel comfortable? Hey, listen, we're going we're gonna to make your loan payments for you for the foreseeable future. How are you making them comfortable? you know, feeling like, well, yeah, you are gonna, you are gonna pay them and I'm not gonna end up a year from now, all of a sudden I get a notice from the bank saying, hey, somebody stopped paying your, you know, the person who took over your property stopped paying your your mortgage payments.
0: Yeah, it's really something that comes up very rarely because all these people want is a solution to the problem. So in this scenario that, that I just outlined in Las Vegas, it's like her problem is she needs $5,000 so she can move and start a new life. And so if we can solve that problem, She's probably going to lose the house if it's not for us anyway, and she knows that. And so, um, solving that problem is is really what's more important. It's super rare that we get a lot of pushback on. Well, how do we know you're going to make the payments and and that kind of thing. And and if we get something like that, it's like, well, I'd be a pretty bad investor if I paid you five thousand dollars only to lose the house, whatnot. And people generally understand at that point. Well, yeah, you'd, you'd be a pre- pretty bad investor, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and we have a good laugh, but it kind of uh, begins to. Um, to create the rapport that we need to just
1: bypass it. Gotcha. Well, let's, you you know, you just brought up rapport. How, what are some tips for building rapport with a seller? When you, you know, when you get a call uh, from a marketing uh, campaign, what are some tips for building rapport?
0: That's a really great question. So I think that that rapport is a very, very important thing, but we also like too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. So uh, I feel like truths are often found in extremes. I, I knew a guy whenever I first started in the business and he was having a tough time buying houses and he would go uh, to look at a house and he would spend two to three hours there. In the first hour, hour and a half, he focused on rapport. Well, I mean, it, it's not something that was super apparent to me at the time, but what I, I realized over time was that if we spend too much time on rapport, it's at the detriment of social value. So we also want to maintain frame and maintain control. and so. I think that people understand that if you're staying there for an hour and a half, two hours talking about their dog, that's disingenuous. You don't really care, but you're trying to to build rapport, and it's, it just it comes off as fake. Okay, so I mean, of course, we want to be cordial, we want to be on time, we want to have a good appearance. Um, I'm a big fan of mimicking and pacing. So um, if someone uses a certain amount of language, then I'll I'll kind of mimic that and then uh, body language as well. So if if I mirror someone and and then I change my, my positioning and they mirror me, then I know that I have influence. So there's a lot of that that goes into it. I mean, it, it's really interesting that there's, I don't know the specific numbers and I'm not frankly not sure how they come up with it in terms of how much of communication is words and then how much is body language. But I know that body language and tone is super, super important and it's often overlooked, right? But, you know, so I'm, I'm interested in building rapport, but honestly, man, like we're in and out most of the time in 30 minutes that's with a contract. So we're in, it's scripted. We know exactly how that conversation is going to go. Uh, we're very good at what we're doing. We're very efficient, but we don't want to be in a situation where we're spending one to two hours focusing on a rapport at the detriment of social value. Yeah.
1: Well, and you, you know, you, you a lot of times you, are, are you pre-qualifying a, a, a a uh, potential property for yeah this is somebody who's genuine and is genuinely in distress and they're not basically just someone who's sort of a a tire kicker you know trying to find out how much they can get for their property
0: 100% so i mean we have a five question script that we do whenever someone asks for an offer okay and at the end of that we're we're basically going to know uh what the repairs are what their timeframe is how much is owed and how much they want at closing as their check and so we have to have something that causes us to, to set an appointment. Just because somebody wants time with my company, it doesn't mean that they get it. And so I call it the triage call for that, for that reason. So I, it's, it's, I liken it to we're basically a triage nurse at the, the emergency room, and their job is to you know basically segment who gets an appointment with the doctor and who goes back to the waiting room. Well, it's like you're bleeding from your net, you're probably going to see a doctor if you're walking with a limp and you have a fever, you're probably going to go to the waiting room. And so I, I really look at our, our sellers as being very similar to that. We have to have something that causes us to say, yeah, that's an appointment worth our time.
1: Gotcha. No, it's such a great, I love that analogy. Uh, you know, cause I, I talk to self-storage owners all the time and you know, you're marketing for them, you're reaching out to them and, and they'll call you because they want to know, Oh, Hey, you know, I wonder what my place is worth right now, but they don't really want to sell. They just want to have, I just want to talk to somebody and see if they can get a number and figure out, you know, what what mm-hmm. the market thinks their property is worth. Um, right. And you know, so it's uh, it's always a struggle for me to basically find, you know, uh, to basically qualify them before I have to spend a lot of time talking to them. So
0: sure, and I think that's a really common problem in the real estate world. Yes, absolutely.
1: So, any any books on um, negotiation that you feel sort of helped you um, helped you along the way?
0: So there's pitch anything
1: by Oren that's one I And it's of
0: not that. really a, a negotiation book as much as it is about framing social value. And it's really interesting in terms of that. So it talks about like if two people are having a conversation, like the, the inner workings of that conversation, that's below the surface.
1: And I think that that's super impactful. And it's been really impactful for me and how we negotiate. That's great. I'll, I'll we'll put it in the show notes. So now you've, you've acquired the property, you've got it, um, subject to the U60 mortgage, you may be uh, given the, the seller a little bit of walk away money. Um, now, how are you going out and finding uh, an end buyer? Sure,
0: that's a great question. So but be-
1: depending on the month, between
0: 10 and 25% of mortgage applications are denied, which means that for the overall buyer pool of people that want to buy housing, between 10 and 25% need on our financing. Well, you think about that in terms of the supply that's available in the market. I mean, there may be thousands of houses uh, in your listeners' markets that are available in the MLS that's supposed to sat- satisfy, let's just say, 90% of buyers. And you may have, at most, a dozen that's supposed to satisfy 10% of the buyer pool. And so, there, as you can see, there's a disparity when it comes to the supply-demand curves of these markets. So all that to say, it's fairly easy to find buyers that need on our financing and it's becoming easier because what we've seen with the virus is that banks are beginning to tighten. So I saw a news, news article not long ago that said Chase has now gone to a 20% down payment minimum and a 700 FICO score minimum, which is basically like, a, a, like waving a flag of we don't want to lend money, you know, and so with that. That's fine by me, because it just pushes people to the owner financing model. They need owner finance, and so we can run uh, Craigslist ads and Facebook ads and uh, different things like that to to create our buyer pool and you know selling houses with owner financing is is often the the easiest deals that i've done so like how I really decided to focus on owner financing there was a time I was doing a lot of retail flips, and I, at the end of a year I, I decided, okay, like let me take my my favorite 10 transactions. And it was like seven, seven of them were under financing. So, I mean, we didn't have realtors involved. We didn't have appraisals or home inspections, although the buyer can if they choose. Um, certainly no repairs after a home inspection, that kind of thing, because it's a financing and not the fixing that sells a house. You know, people want to own a home. And so it, it's super easy to find that buyer. Gotcha.
1: And so when you find that buyer, I mean, are they, are you requiring, are you doing any sort of credit check on them? Or are you doing... Uh... Are they doing 20% down, 5% down, 10% down? What, what does that transaction look like?
0: Yeah. So I would say that our, our average down payment somewhere around 15 to 20% down, um, that would range from maybe a 5% minimum um, if, we, if there's extenuating circumstances that, that make that a safe transaction for us. Um, so we're getting real money down and we're also looking at uh, like a front-end ratio. So basically uh, what's the housing cost to the, the net income in the household? So we want to make sure that we're not putting someone in a bad position. And sometimes you have a real ethics call because I've had situations where someone has, say, like $50,000 down on a house, but they're asking for a $1,300 per month payment and they make $2,000 a month. Mm. Well, you know that we can't do that. Yeah. You know, even though that that fifty dollars down payment would be fantastic, we can't put people in a position to fail, you know, if we can help it. Yeah. And so um, we've had a lot of success with what we do. And um, we
1: want to make sure that we're not creating a problem for someone if we can help. Gotcha. And what's the, what's the typical income ratio you're looking to hit?
0: Well, in terms of the the front ratio, we, we want to see a third, but that's a third based on net income and not gross. So it's pretty standard. I think it's 31% for conventional or somewhere around in there for a front ratio. And, but they're also going off of gross income. We want to look at net because that's what's actually spendable that's what's actually coming into the household and uh based on that we feel pretty comfortable somewhere
1: around in yeah it, it always it it does always sort of surprise me that you know when you're out there applying for a loan that they always ask you for what your gross income is and and I'm like all right that's fine I'm glad you guys will take my gross income but you know in reality the money that I get in my bank account every month is the net <laughs> so
0: yeah. And I think that maybe with AI in the future that they will come up with some kind of algorithm that's a lot a lot more true to what the, the income and, and the affordability of housing actually is. Uh, I don't know. I have no clue what that would look like, but it, it seems like what we're
1: working with right now is pretty outdated. Yeah. No. Um, so what, um, what does the day in the life of of a, of, a, of a subject to, you know, loan wrap uh, investor look like right now?
0: You know, um, that's a great question. And uh, I'll, I'll talk about it in terms of my, my apprentices more likely because i have pretty well delegated myself out of a job. So I, ha- I have a controller that's over my investing company and now I help other people. With what they're doing in terms of creating financing for themselves, and so um, the the fun part about real estate—it's fun for most people, but it's also kind of terrifying for people as well—is that you don't have this set schedule. So people that come from the corporate world and they're used to working fifty hours a week and and they know exactly every minute, you know, how they're billing that time or whatever that looks like. Um, real estate's just not that. So um, one of the the tougher things for for me and and my now wife so i mean we we were dating when we were 19 and i was really happy and lucky that she saw me be a real estate agent and she was used to well if the right phone call comes in i've got to go you know or um i'm i'm really sorry i'm 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 late to the the date tonight because something popped up in the business you know um so it's like what does a normal day look like the the normal day looks like uh who knows yeah you know because there there's seriously been situations where i'm sitting down for a nice Friday afternoon lunch, and the state just arrived, and you know, I get a call from my acquisition people, and it's like, we gotta go buy this house right now. And it's like, check please, you know, and, and that happens. So you never know what's gonna happen. Uh, and I really like that, but some people don't like how non-structured that is. Yeah. You know?
1: Well, and it's important, an important lesson that when you're marketing for real estate deals that you pick up the phone when they call. Uh, you know, it, it can't be let it go to voicemail. Uh, because chances are that person, you know, they either were just getting up the courage to call somebody and and sort of ask for help or they're shopping around for, you know, and they're going to, they're going to go to the first person that picks up the, you know, picks up the phone.
0: Yeah. I look at it as a shelf life. It's like milk has a shelf life and maybe it's two weeks. I feel like a lead is 20 minutes. So like we want to get to that lead in five minutes. If, if we don't, then we know that there's a, a significant decline for every minute because you're exactly right. They're probably beginning to call other people. We can't have that. Like we want them to feel like the house is sold with that triage call and you know, all of that's ended. Gotcha.
1: And so, so for one of your apprentices, you know, they're, they're probably, uh, their main tasks are going to be marketing for deals, sending out marketing, um, taking calls, screening, you know, tri- the triage. And then, uh, negotiating the final sale, you know, meeting with the actual seller, and then finally uh, finding the end buyer and, and, and getting an end buyer into there, is that correct?
0: Yeah, 100%, absolutely. Okay.
1: All right, uh, and then typically how long does that, um, how long are those wrap mortgages amortized for? I mean, is it, uh, is it a 30-year am, is, it, uh, is there a term on it? Like, how, do you, how long does that last?
0: Yeah, so we do straight amortized 30-year notes. Um, depending on if we want the note to cash out or not, we may put a rising interest rate on the loan. Um, but there are some loans that we don't want to cash out because the yield that we're getting wouldn't be difficult to, to match anywhere else. And so those are the, the notes we don't want to cash out. So, uh, but we don't do balloons. We don't do prepayment penalties. And you know people can let it run the full 30-year term if they choose. Most of the notes are going to cash out in five years. So b- before that five-year timeline, people are generally going to
1: cash it out. Gotcha. They'll, they'll, they'll have gotten a point where they can get n- normal financing and they'll go out and they'll refinance it into a, a, a normal Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac.
0: Correct. And I mean, as you know, uh, getting a refinance loan is easier than a purchase mortgage. And so we can show the underwriter, hey, these series of payments have been made and, and they're at, at a higher rate than what, you know, traditional mortgage rates are today. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a good situation for everybody.
1: Gotcha. Now, my understanding is that uh, when the Dodd-Frank Act got passed, that they put in a lot of regulations in regards to uh, mortgage lending. Do you guys uh, work with, a, I think, RMLO, RMLO at all, uh, to sort of service your, your mortgages? That's a really great
0: question. So for, for those of you guys that don't understand, uh, the Dodd-Frank Act was in part an anti-banking regulation act. Uh, that came to be after the crash of 08. And so there, there was a lot of uh, of bad press about the 1% and the banks taking advantage. And and, and I think partially that was true. You know, uh, The Dodd-Frank Act, in my opinion, probably went a, a little bit uh, sideways when it came to the owner financing world. But they effectively made it to where there was a, a limited number of transactions that you can do as an individual owner finance where you're originating the loan. Um, and depending on the state, uh, your, your state may have a different number. So I think in Tennessee, it's four. Okay. So to get around that, you can have a residential mortgage loan officer, an RMLO, go and bless the transaction. So they're going to go and underwrite it and make sure that it is to Dodd-Frank standards. Now, uh, the, so that's number one. If you're concerned about Dodd-Frank, then you can have an RMLO bless the transaction. Number two, and this is really the, the way that we do it, is we're not originating. So oftentimes I put my buyer in place before my seller and I close. So it's my seller that's originating the loan and there's an assignment of note and deed of trust or an assignment of note and mortgage that assigns us the note. So we don't originate. And that's a short answer is, you know, it's a lot easier to not originate, have the seller originate the deal and we don't have any Dodd-Frank issue. Gotcha, gotcha.
1: Um, so you're doing, I think I read on your website, your, your, your properties are in 15 states, is that correct?
0: Well, we bought in, in close to, I don't know if we're at 20 or 21 right now, okay. but uh, I mean, we're not actively at this point buying in that many states, but we have it at, at certain points. Yeah.
1: Gotcha. And you obviously, you mentioned you, you're in Tennessee, but you recently you know, purchased a, a, did a deal here in Las Vegas. So obviously you're able to execute deals long distance, correct? Correct. Uh, and how are you managing that?
0: uh very carefully. I I, I say that I ha- I have a good team. I have a, a three-quarter time accountant uh that's with me and and she's I'm the big picture guy, so like I I'm I'm good at the vision. Uh she's good at details, you know, and the controllers as well. And so having a good team around you that that kind of complements uh your strengths is super important and you know, you hire for your weaknesses. So I mean, I'm not an organized detail person and I, it's like I have to have those people around me. So Um, and, and they would know probably more about the systems in in terms of how that goes than I do.
1: Gotcha. Um, so when someone's starting out, one of your, you know, one of your students or apprentices is starting out, what do you think is the key thing that they need to learn how to do in order to be successful?
0: I'm going to look at it from a, a macro perspective first and then micro. So from a macro perspective, I find that people, um, need to focus on their mindset more. So, if we don't take time to focus on what we're thinking about and begin to manage that for ourselves, then i mean the the, the brain will kind of turn against you so like it, it's tough to create positivity from negativity, right, and if we're negative we're going to have a a tough time creating a positive business. Um, So that's the, the macro perspective. From the micro perspective, everything starts with a motivated seller. And so if we understand on the front end that marketing is an investment, it's not a cost. Like even today, I hate the idea of putting money into houses, but I know that it is highly effective and efficient and highly profitable for me to put more money into efficient marketing that scales. Okay. So if we understand that the marketing is an investment, it's the best investment that we can possibly make, then we're going to be a lot more successful, a lot faster. But in order to do that, you have to have the right mindset. So like, I mean, kind of my story, whenever one of my first notes cashed out, um, my wife and I were in in Maui, Hawaii for our anniversary trip. And it took me like five Mai Tais to get to the point that I could spend $15,000 on marketing. I mean, it hurt my soul so bad. because i would never spent $15,000 on anything effectively, you know, to send that money in and start doing direct mail whenever I had no idea if I would get that money back. It's a tough emotional thing for someone to do because it feels like gambling, you know, and I'm not a gambler. But now I look at uh, there was a point when we were mailing 70,000 yellow letters a month and I looked at each one as being a lottery ticket, you know, and and that's that's what it was. We were buying lottery tickets at an, an extreme discount. But, uh, you know, we, we've got to have the marketing down to create an effective business, but we have to have the mindset first.
1: Gotcha. I, uh, I came from a, in, in another life, I was a, uh, I was a, a, a struggling actor and I, I often compared, uh, I often compare acting to playing the lottery for a living. Uh, you've <laughs> got to get out there and you gotta, you gotta buy the tickets. You gotta be out there. You gotta bu- be buying tickets, but you never know when something is going to be, you know, when something's going to work out for you. And, um, yeah, and, you know, with marketing, with real estate, I think it's, it's, it's better than playing a lottery because there's a, a better chance of, you know, the odds are better. Uh, but it really comes down to just, to, it's a numbers game. You, you have to put out, you got to put down the money to get the phone to ring. And then there are people out there, you get enough, you know, enough, enough calls, you're, you're going to find a deal.
0: Yeah. And, and the thing is, guys, that time is the great equalizer with this. So, you know, you may not get a deal your first mailing. And frankly, with that first fifteen thousand dollars worth of mail that I spent, I didn't get a deal from it. But by the end of it, I realized all the deals I had missed. So it got me through the learning curve. I doubled down, I spent another fifteen thousand and that that marketing hit and I did very well from that. You know, but um, we we've got to make sure and focus on the mindset first as well. Yeah.
1: Brad, thank you so much for sharing with us today. If any of our uh, listeners want to learn more about you and, and what you're up to, what would be the best way for them to find you?
0: Yeah, so for those of you guys interested in owner financing, I have a podcast, Investor Creator on iTunes and the various other uh, podcast platforms. And for those that want to reach out to me directly, then you can reach out to me at brad at bradsmotherman.com.
1: Okay, well, thanks for so, much, so much for being part of our show today, Brad.
0: Appreciate it very much, enjoyed it.
1: Okay, that was Brad Smotherman from bradsmotherman.com and the Investor Creator Podcast. So key lessons learned for me uh, on this was that you can create equity from terms. You know, we often talk about adding value uh, or forcing appreciation by buying a property, improving it in some way, spending money to improve it. And then you create equity from that forced appreciation. But it is possible to create that equity from the terms that you buy a property. And in this case, you know, he is, they're taking over an existing mortgage um, on a property that let's say, you know uh, the example he used uh, for the place in Las Vegas, he took over an existing mortgage that um, had about $175,000 left on it. And then he turned around and he owner financed it to another individual for $220,000. So he just created, um, a spread of roughly what, five hundred and twenty thousand dollars in equity from that, uh, and then he also was, you know, probably got a down payment from the end buyer, um, which gave him some cash, you know, right up front, and then, you know, now he's created a note that now then continues to uh, continues to pay him. Uh, it's it's a great strategy, and it and it works with self storage You know, we, we do it with self storage as well. Uh, I mean, you can. Um, when you come to an owner, you can talk to them about, um, you know, owner finance, seller financing, you know, and, and taking over their existing mortgage if they're in trouble Um, or just, you know, if the deal is going to be tricky financing, you know, when an owner hasn't kept great records, it can be difficult to go to a, a commercial bank and get a loan on that. So a lot of times you have to go to the seller and say, look, you know, I'll, uh, if you'll hold the note, I'll take over, you know, I'll pay you. And then once you get it stabilized, uh, and you have kept good records and shown that it's a profitable property, then you're able to then go to uh, a commercial bank and get a loan and then pay off the uh, pay off the seller. Um, the key piece of knowledge that he talked about his um, students and himself needing to learn was one mindset. Um, and, and he talked about being positive. And I think what he was referring to is that, you know, when you are talking to a lot of different sellers and, and you're, you're going to hear a lot of no's, uh, people are going to hang up the phone on you, they're going to call you and tell you off. And you need to have your, you're focused on that you know this will work if you give it time, uh, and you know if you knock on enough no, enough doors, you will get yes. Um, and, and that part of that mindset is being um, allowing yourself to just remember that this is going to work. Uh, and then he talked about marketing, and that and that runs back into it. Is you got to learn to market, um, and you got to understand that the money that you are you are spending money, it feels like you're throwing money uh, into a marketing hole but you will get money back from that. Um, how much money did it take him to get started in his chosen niche? Zero. Uh, that's one of the amazing things about, uh, this kind of strategy is that if you do it right, uh, you really can get into it for very little money. Now with a caveat, uh, often, uh, you're going to need some marketing dollars to get started. He, he said his first, uh, big marketing spend was $15,000. Um, Now, there are ways to, you know, you can drive for dollars and you can look for for distressed properties and and you can do it very cheaply. But in general, it is going to take some marketing dollars. I know the the people who do this successfully, I know that they they have to spend money on marketing. And it's something that, that a lot of people sometimes leave out. Uh, how much time do they spend on their endeavors? Um, he, you know, he's gotten to the point where now he's, he's pretty big and he's gotten to the point where he's able to delegate most of his, uh, uh, his tasks to uh, interns and, and other people. Uh, but he talked about uh, it's very difficult to, to put a number on this kind of strategy because uh, it's all about you have to be ready when the phone rings uh, to get to work. Um, once that phone rings you know you're going to have to you know qualify that seller do the triage which I loved uh loved that analogy and then m- make an appointment with that that seller and and get to work uh so it's really difficult i mean you could be you know my guess is you could be somebody who does this you know one week it could be 5 days 5 hours a week where you're just spending money on marketing and just sending out letters and things like that and then you know one week it would be 50 hours because you're having to uh, field calls from sellers and make appointments and, and go meet with sellers and, and end buyers and things like that. So, could they do this strategy from anywhere in the world? Uh, I would say yes to a point. I mean, you're going to have to have a team on the ground. Um, Brad's obviously gotten to big to the point where he can buy a property in Las Vegas from Nashville. Uh, but Brad, he's got a team on the ground. And, and I would say if you were doing this strategy, if you're starting off doing this strategy, I would absolutely recommend that you, you focus on uh, your local market and something nearby for an area that you know, because you're going to want to go and meet with sellers face-to-face. So, once again, that was Brad Smotherman from bradsmotherman.com and the investor creator podcast. We thank him so much for his time. We're doing this all again next week. Uh, let's hit the road. Hey, before you go, if you like the show, we would be delighted if you'd head over to PodChaser and leave us an honest review. And do let us know why you like the show, how long you've been listening, and in particular, what you find really useful or entertaining. And let us know if there's anything you think we should change. Also, if you have specific questions about real estate investing, especially self-storage or short-term rentals, shoot us an email at info at road to and we'll be happy to answer your question on the show. We might even turn it into an entire episode. Thanks for listening. We're doing this all again next week. Until then, safe travels.